This is Boss Talk, and I'm Mike Elk, Senior Labor Reporter at Payday Report. Boss Talk is a project of Payday Report, a new labor publication based out of Louisville, Kentucky. Each week, my co-host and I, University of Wyoming labor law professor Mike Duff, will talk about ways in which workers were able to fix their boss through organizing and labor law tactics. Payday has been covering the growing movement for the Fight for 15 here in North Carolina. Despite the fact that many cities in North Carolina would pass living wage increases for workers, they're legally barred from doing this. In fact, last week, the state repealed uh, HB2, the so-called bathroom bill. As part of the compromise, they left in place a -a three-and-a-half-year moratorium on states increasing their wages for municipal contractors. These kind of laws, or their so-called preemption laws, are a growing trend across the U.S. Right now, 24 states have preemption laws on the books. Nearly every state in the South, except Arkansas and West Virginia, have preemption laws on the books. These laws prevent many progressive enclaves throughout the South from increasing their own minimum wage, something that could really help folks a lot. Right now, though, there's becoming a a number of legal challenges to these laws. Uh, In Alabama, a lawsuit has been filed against the state for passing a law that overturned a 2015 decision by the Birmingham City Council to raise the minimum wage there to 10.10 an hour. The Alabama NAACP is suing the state, saying that the law preempting the Birmingham minimum wage increase violates the Voting Rights Act. After all, Birmingham is a majority black city, while the state legislature of Alabama is majority white. Here to help me sort all this out is uh, Mike Duff, University of Wyoming labor law professor. Mike, how big of a trend are these preemption laws becoming, and how can states push back? Well, I do think uh, there's a trend, but I think of trend a little bit differently. So what I see when I think about American legal history is that we go through cycles. So there are periods in history where we experience very similar kinds of things, where states, progressive states, progressive cities attempted to change uh, laws locally, and then there was pushback from more conservative state governments. And so we have a conflict between state law and local law. And often in the law, we have conflicts between federal law and state law and federal law and local law. So these conflicts are not unusual. But I think what happens is that uh, one side or another uh, rediscovers um, the existence of uh, laws that will aid them in in achieving some kind of a policy objective. So how... Can someone use the Voting Rights Act to push back against these kind of laws? Well, the the lawsuit that you mentioned in Alabama is really uh, pretty ingenious, uh, frankly, because up to now, the debate has been whether cities have the authority to pass uh, local laws in states that have basically marked out uh, uh, theories of law that say, unless a city is explicitly granted authority to do something, the city can't do it. So we've been caught up in that kind of debate. The so-called bathroom uh, laws are sort of argued on that, uh, on that axis and in that way. Uh, the difference here is that the city is invoking uh, federal law. And when they invoke federal law, they get themselves out of that uh, kind of rubric. Uh, does the city have the authority? Doesn't the city ha- have the authority? And, uh, and they get into a different kind of plane of legal argument where they're they're invoking arguments under federal anti-discrimination law, which I think is a is a very smart litigation tactic. Now, you were saying that, you know, already uh, they've lost in the district court 
in northern Alabama, and they might lose again. And, and yesterday, you and I were talking about how Thurgood Marshall would go around the South and do test cases, and that sometimes losing cases leads up to a legal victory. Yeah, I, I think that those of us who have been involved in litigation where the law is uh, clearly against our position understand that litigation takes time, uh, theories of law take time to develop, and Thurgood Marshall is an excellent example uh, of this. Now, imagine Thurgood Marshall, you know, pre-Brown v. the Board uh, in 1954, driving around um, the South and arguing uh, cases under various anti-discrimination theories before the existence of federal anti-discrimination law. Now, he would drive into a town not only knowing that he was going to lose, but getting death threats along the way. He's, he's always been I one mean, that's of my- in, That's incredible. You know, you're going into town, you know you're going to lose and you might get killed too. Yeah. So, so he's one of my, he's always been one of my, uh, my legal uh, heroes and I, I think uh, grossly uh, underappreciated in many quarters. But you know, he would go, he would approach a case thinking, I'm going to lose the case, but I, if I can establish one principle that will help me in a later case, that's what I'm going to do. And, uh, you know, you might lose a case in Alabama. And that case, I think, as you mentioned, has been appealed to the uh, 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, and uh, which is a southeastern uh, U.S. circuit. And you might well lose the case. But if the theories are well developed and if the case is well argued, that same case might be picked up, say, in the more liberal Ninth Circuit. And in that circuit, uh, the arguments might have more success. And so you can imagine this kind of process uh, going on over the course of years. Certainly, it's, a, it's an incremental battle, but it's also an effective way to organize workers, racial minorities, and others around uh, progressive legal ideas. And so I think it has a way of galvanizing folks who are attempting to uh, assert rights and helping to define rights uh, over the course of time. Well, you know, whenever I think of losing legal cases, uh, I always think of Kurt Flood, right? Uh, people remember Kurt Flood uh, was really one of the pioneers in the Major League Players Union in baseball. And what happened is that Major League Baseball was granted an antitrust exemption back in the day. And they claimed that, you know, the federal government had no ability to regulate baseball since it wasn't a business, it was a game. And for some time, uh, this meant that labor laws didn't apply to Major League Baseball. So essentially, a player's contract would expire and Major League Baseball teams could uh, extend it unilaterally. There was no ability to be a free agent. You couldn't choose where you wanted to work in Major League Baseball. Flood, in the early 70s, brought a case to the Supreme Court against Major League Baseball, which he lost horribly. He was, he was blacklisted. And what winded up happening is it really galvanized people in the sports industry to organize. Uh, have you seen cases like that yourself, Mike, where you know, people will lose the case, but it, you know, it's, it's losing a battle, but winning the war? Absolutely. Uh, one of the things that we do in law school is uh, when we study a case, we study the majority opinion, but we also study the dissent, the dissenting opinion, because the dissenting opinion very often becomes the, uh, it's the genesis of what the law may be in five years or 10 years or 15 years. Now, uh, sports antitrust law is a classic example of where you can get movement and where it's really worthwhile making um, all kinds of uh, expansive arguments. Because to be honest with you, the doctrine surrounding labor preemption in sports is not only complex, it's extremely complex, 
but it's a lot of it is judicially created. It's not you can't point to uh, statutes and say the statute clearly says this or it clearly says that. So there's wiggle room. There's, yeah, there's, there's space. There's room. There, there's there, there's uh, there, there are places to make arguments that uh, that are plausible. And um, and so I think it's very careful. And I try to teach my students to, in a way, beware of doctrine. I know that sounds funny uh, to hear a lawyer saying beware of doctrine, but I think you know the doctrine can have a way of sticking to you in a way that's not helpful. It's not healthy. Um, uh, the uh, the legal system. What do you what, is, do you, what, what uh, do you mean by that? It's not healthy. I think that if you if you look at law in an overly static way, the law will never uh, grow. It will never change to accommodate changing needs in society. I, I very much have a living sense of, uh, of, of the law. The law uh, is changing. It's adapting to new uh, situations. And a lot of the struggles that we have in the law really are between those who claim that there's a fixed textual law that can't be departed from. And of course, people making those arguments are usually people who benefit from the uh, status quo. And those, on the other hand, that are making uh, the argument that, no, this law, number one, isn't as fixed as you say. And number two, even if it is fixed, uh, maybe there are ways to unfix it that we haven't uncovered yet. So what do you think should be uh, the future for these preemption movements? Because this is a huge issue. I mean, it's outrageous that cities like Nashville and Atlanta and Durham, you know, progressive cities in the South where they could mobilize to pass uh, $15 an hour. I mean, it's really interesting because in Durham, there's the Durham Living Wage Campaign. And what they've done is they've gone around to businesses and they've gotten them to voluntarily agree to adopt a living wage. It's about $13 an hour, but it's based on calculations of cost of living and all these things. They've gone around to 100 businesses and gotten them to voluntarily comply to be in this program and have an independent monitoring system to make sure that they're doing it. So when you see 100 businesses in a city like Durham, which is you know a, a very racially divided town in many ways, sign up to have a living wage, you got to imagine in a college town like Dorham where Duke is, that you could pass a minimum wage law increase. I mean, what do you think is the path forward for labor in overturning these preemption laws? Well, the first thing to keep in mind is that when we say labor and uh, uh, preemption laws that are of interest to labor, there's a whole range of labor laws uh, that neither the state nor the city can enter into. And that has to do with uh, federal labor relations law, all, all of labor relations law, and I'll give you an example of what I mean, law that pertains to strikes and lockouts and permanent replacements and so forth. Uh, all of that is regulated by federal law. Neither the city nor the state can, uh, can intrude on that field under a doctrine called machinist preemption. Now, when you talk about wage ordinances, that's a different matter. That doesn't involve uh, any um, area of federal law uh, that would cause uh, an ordinance to be preempted by federal law. So we have this conflict between state and local laws. The very first point I'd make is the one that I made really at the outside of our conversation, which, which is uh, this is not a new phenomenon. You may have heard of the term Dillon's Law, right? And Dillon's Law jurisdictions are jurisdictions uh, where uh, state law is construed as uh, being absolutely superior to local law. So the locality it exists at the mere pleasure of the, of the state. The, the, the purpose of the city is to administer local law for the state. 
So there's no sense of the of the local um, entity or the city or the municipality um, having a some kind of an inherent right to pass its own laws, the so-called home rule uh, idea. It's interesting to think about who Dillon was, right? Dillon was a, um, uh, a Columbia law professor who was simultaneously a lead lawyer for the Union Pacific Railroad. And so when we talk about this uh, Dillon's rule, here's how it emerged. Uh, there's, a, there's a famous Supreme Court case. Uh, in essence, what happens is in Clinton, Iowa, they get tired of having railroad tracks laying, laid all through their town. And so they pass a, an ordinance that says you can't lay railroad track all through our town. You know who doesn't like that? The railroad company. And so there's a, a case that goes all the way to the Supreme Court. And the rule that comes out is that the state has absolute authority to usurp the municipal law. Why? Because the city is a creature of the state. When you think about that, you had a kind of progressive uh, struggle going on there, a town that wants to control its streets versus a state that is presumably interested in providing railroads with opportunities to operate uh, within cities. So that's how far back this struggle goes. And I'm talking about a case from the uh, 1860s, 1870s. So one thing to remember, nobody really disagrees that if a municipal law, city law, directly conflicts with the state law, that the state law will prevail. That's pretty much black letter law. That's pretty, that, that's doctrinally settled. But that's not what we're dealing with here. What I just described is an actual preemption situation where there's a conflict between two laws. The state says the speed limit is 50 miles an hour. The city says it's going to be 30 miles an hour. Well, state law prevails. Here we have something different going on. We have a living wage ordinance. And probably we don't have any state law speaking to the issue at all. So the question becomes, does the city have the authority to pass a living wage ordinance? If you believe in home rule, you'd say, of course it does. It, it, you know, it's, it, it's, a, it's an issue that affects the city, affects the locality, so it does have the authority to do that. If you're a Dillon's rule proponent, you say something like, unless the state constitution specifically grants the right in the city's charter to pass that kind of a law, the city doesn't have the right to do it. That's a pretty stark difference, right? Because a lot of city charters are going to be silent with respect to things like that. So the outcome is going to be that uh, the city's not allowed to do it. So that's really what we're struggling with, which is a little different than preemption. So what do you think is the path forward for folks in terms of overturning those? Is there one or is this just something that folks are going to be stuck with? No, I think the path forward is to uh, to to be creative in the same way that, uh, that uh, uh, Birmingham was that there are other kinds of theories, other kinds of ideas uh, as to why a municipality should be able to, uh, to pass these kinds of laws. I think that uh, the, the evolution of the law is such that uh, initially you're going to lose cases. You know, you're going to lose these cases. You're going to have states that are uh, Dillon's rule uh, uh, states. You know what you do then? You change state law. You have to find out who is a proponent of Dillon's rule and, if necessary, elect new people that don't share that view. So it's definitely a struggle. It's an interesting issue because it's one that can actually lead to left-right alliances in some states. 
uh, which is that cities now in North Carolina, they're not being able to get development fees. They're not being able to present certain types of laws around all kind of issues now by the state. And it's really one where some people think there there could be a left-right alliance. Uh, but you know as well as I do that capital, uh, you know, there's capital and there's workers. Well, yeah. And, and I think often uh, that's why you can make progress in the law in other areas of law that don't directly implicate, you know, the capital labor uh, divide. So for example, when we're talking about bathroom laws, or when we're talking about disability issues, or when we're talking about, as I saw recently when I did some research on this, dangerous dog breed laws. Should a municipality be able to ban- Anti-pit bull laws, pit bull, I, yeah, I gotta say, as someone who's a pit bull dad, I, I, it's awful. So that may, be, that may be where you can make headway. And, and I think the key for advocacy is that you're, you're always looking for different approaches to the, uh, to the problem, right? So yeah, if you frame the argument in a certain kind of way, you may lose 20 times in a row, but, but you don't stop. You think of other ways to couch the argument. You think of other theories. And, um, and if you simply have the frame of mind that this is, uh, this is all experimental, I think it's much easier to, to, to take. You don't feel as deflated when one of your ideas um, uh, fails to work. I should say to you, Mike, that when you talk about the left-right uh, alliance, you know, a lot of the, uh, the theme of American um, political history is that uh, state governments are the, are the laboratories, right? We think of innovation as coming from the states. And in a way, there's kind of an artificial limitation of local experimentation to the level of state government. And in fact, when you think of what's happened in population over the last hundred years, it's pretty hard to argue that, uh, that you shouldn't be allowing especially large municipalities, uh, the authority to experiment to figure out how best to organize themselves and run themselves. So, so you can see over time, this is an idea whose time has come. Uh, just in terms of thinking about democracy, the idea that most people in most municipalities are going to be stopped in their tracks by more narrowly focused uh, state governments, that's obviously something that can't stand. And so I, I believe it'll be overcome. And I think that's really the key note that we can end on is that in labor and in labor law, I think we have to have a lot of experimentation if labor is going to survive. I think that's right. Well, thanks for joining us this week from Raleigh. We look forward to bringing you a show next week. Thanks, Mike. Boss Talk is a work in progress, much like the rest of the labor movement. And we depend on our members, our readers, those who listen to us, to give us the energy to keep building. And, and we're here to be a publication for you as readers. We want to know what you think. And we want to write stories about workers, funded by workers, from the perspective of workers. And it's up to folks like you. So write in, donate, let us know what you think about this. And we'll keep listening to you and we'll keep putting out a show with some of the most interesting perspectives on labor law this week. 